Before we get into today's episode, just want to tell you about the Joint Public Issues Team Conference we've got coming up on the 11th of June. It's called From the Ground Up, where we're going to be exploring the importance of the local, talking to different campaigners and causes and learning and growing together. It's incredibly cheap. It's such a steal. If you attend online, it's only £5 for the whole day. And if you come to London to come on site, it's only £12 and it's free for under 25s and those on low income. Make sure that you come and say hi to Ryan and I when you come to the conference. And we can't, we can't wait to see you. Enjoy this week's episode. Well, it is brilliant to be joined by this guest today. Uh, he is the MP for East Glasgow. What's the, what's the correct Scottish way of saying that? I feel like already well, I've made an error. I, I mean, no, it's fine. Uh, I'm the MP for Glasgow East. Um, Glasgow East. I mean, that in itself is a bit of a kind of misnomer of a term because it, it's just like a kind of like a, a kind of compass point on a map. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in my constituency that would never say I'm from Glasgow East or East Glasgow. You know, they're from a smaller community than that. So it's not a homogenous <laughs> bubble. Um, but that, that's that's the name that the Boundary Commission gave it. Um, Great. Uh, yeah, that's Glasgow East. Um, and I've been so MP there for five years now. The MP for Glasgow East, David Linden. Thank you for joining us, David. We really appreciate that. Um, why don't we just jump in then with a little bit of your story of where you're from and how that that led you uh, to getting involved in, in politics in, in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, I'm not from what you would consider a, a kind of conventional political background. Um, so I was brought up in a very working class community, which I still live in and represent. Um, you know, brought up by a single parent, I left school at 16, didn't go to university. So I'm not one of these, you know, PPE graduates. Um, so, so in many respects, my, my kind of journey into politics was quite unconventional. Um, the other thing to say is as well is that, you know, I'm a nationalist MP. Um, I joined the SNP in 2001 when I was just 11 years old. Um, and I didn't do it because it was a popular thing to do. I didn't do it because there was going to be a career out of it. Actually, the seat that I represent now, the SNP took just 18% of the vote in, in that election. So we were very much kind of in the, the, the kind of fringes or the periphery. Uh, Scottish politics and I think that you know the issue of Scottish independence was was very much a kind of um, a, an idea whose time had not yet come so to speak but you know it's something that I believe in. So, so I joined the SNP in 2001 and um, was quite happy just going out and, and delivering leaflets and, and kind of going canvassing when I was in my kind of teenage years um, and, and that's largely how I ended up in the SNP um, but in terms of how I started working for the party um, as I mentioned, you know, it wasn't until about 2007 onwards where we actually kind of um, hit the big time, uh, if, if, it, if it was like, you know, music or something like that. Um, <clears throat> so at that stage, I had already left school. Um, I had left school because I wanted to be a police officer. Um, and I'd gone to set my, my standard entrance test for the police. There's, there's three different tests that you get. It's English, maths and information handling. And uh, passed English and maths and failed information handling by half a mark. And I was so stubborn because I'd already told the school that I was going to leave and there was no way I was going back to the school office to say, hey, can I stay on because you know, it's not come past. So I went off and I worked uh, in, in France uh, as a, a loan underwriter 
um, and then ended up doing an apprenticeship with Glasgow City Council in business administration. Um, so the, the police thing went way off the dial. There was no prospect of me ever working in politics. I was quite happy to just be a volunteer. And then in 2008, there was a by-election in Glasgow East. Um, both of you are probably far too young to remember this, but um, 2008, Gordon Brown's Prime Minister, and it's, it's all going horrific. Um, and then the Labour MP for this safe seat of Glasgow East decides to, to stand down um, due to ill health. Uh, and, and one of my good friends at the time was uh, the, the candidate um, and a, he also a committed Christian as well. And so I took three weeks unpaid leave from work to just go and campaign for him. And lo and behold, uh, he was elected with a very narrow majority, or, or what I thought was a narrow majority of, of 365 votes, but we'll come back to that later. <laughs> um, and uh, he got elected. Um, and, and I was quite happy with that uh, and went back to work. Um, but obviously he had to set up a constituency office. The SNP, you know, needed folk to kind of work as caseworkers and stuff. So I got a job as a caseworker in 2008. Um, and that's largely how I kind of like fell into politics. Obviously that politics is a bit like quicksand. You know, the more you fight it, the more you get sucked into it. Um, so I kind of started off kind of working uh, for a Westminster MP. Then he lost the seat, as most by-election winners do. Um, and worked in Holyrood, worked in Brussels. Uh, back in the halcyon days when we were members of the European Union, then ended up becoming an MP. Um, and here, five years later on, with a receding hairline, some grey hair in at the sides, and uh, some wrinkles under my eyes, I'm still surviving, but only just. That's amazing. So it really sounds like it, it was that gradual process and not something you planned from the start. Um, and just, I like, I like that image of you getting sucked deeper and deeper into the world of politics. and. Um, I guess I'm just interested then because your role as an MP and you know Ryan and I will have seen this working for other MPs in Westminster that I often think it is a couple of full-time jobs it's a, a job with your community a job like doing that casework and being involved in the community and and I guess furthering the interests of the area but also having to travel to London from Scotland all the time must take up a lot of your time and your energy to do the the um broader stuff as well how do you find that dynamic and I guess is there certain parts within the jobs that you prefer um yeah it, you know it's that's an excellent question Beth and I, I think I would say there's probably about three parts to the job um, I mean firstly and foremost you are you know the point of contact with your constituents and it's your job to, to kind of seek redress of grievance um whether it's an issue relating to the home office department of work inventions and so on um so the constituency casework is always well and has been put first for me um i think the second <coughs> part of it um and there's some excellent kind of books out there i really recommend you know as bill harden's why we get the wrong politicians um, but there's a tension as well, um, because I think a lot of MPs, particularly in this kind of like mass communication era, where people get in touch with you on email, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, phone, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I think that politicians are probably more in touch with their communities and end up taking on more casework. But actually, there's also the part of the job, the second aspect of the job is that you're a legislator. So your job is to look at the legislation that's coming forward through Parliament and deciding whether or not you agree with this, whether or not it should be improved. Um, and, you know, that that's the second aspect. I, I think there's a third aspect, though, which is that, and I was talking to... Um, 
Ryan's boss, who for full disclosure is my partner, um, but I, I was talking to, to Kat about this, that there's also the kind of the ambassadorial role um, that, that you play for, for your constituency as well, um, both in the constituency, whether that's you know, cutting the ribbon at local post office or something like that, or in Westminster, where you are the voice of, you know, in my case, Glasgow East. So there, there's three, there are three very different bits of the job because the first bit I was talking about the constituency case, what you're sitting in a cold, drafty community hall on a Friday morning across the trestle table talking to somebody um, about what is the biggest issue in their life. Um, and yeah, you might have a situation, for example, we are, you know, the situation, let's say, take Ukraine and Russia at the moment is the main issue on, on people's television screens. But I suspect when I go and do my constituency surgery tomorrow morning, there'll be somebody almost certainly in tears across that table from me about a social work case. And so you've really got to be able to, to put aside, essentially, some of the, the, the policy and the party politics and just deal with the constituency issues. And then in Westminster, you know, the, the amount of legislation that is churned out is, is enormous. Um, and so, you know, whether it's statutory instruments, whether it's primary legislation, you've got to be across that as well. And in my case, you know, I also shadow a government department. It's the largest government department with, you know, hundreds of billions of pounds. Um, so there's a lot of detail to be across. Um, and, you know, I enjoy that aspect of the job. But I think you're right, Beth, to touch on geography. Um, I mean, I, I represent a constituency that's about 350 miles from Westminster. Um, so every single week I do a 700 mile round trip, basically every three or four days I'm on a plane or a train um, and you know that that does start to kick in, you can probably pick up that I've got a bit of a cold at the moment um, and that just happens fairly regularly, you, you sit on trains and planes before you can end up catching colds and you know your body just gets worn down, um, so, so yeah it, it, it's a great job, it, it, you know it's, a, it's an absolute honour and a privilege and, and there's something incredibly special about your friends, your family, your neighbours, the people that you have lived alongside your entire life, literally electing you to be their, their representative, their voice. Mm. Um, but like, I, I don't want to get too romantic about it. it. It's also a job that is, is really hard going at times. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it definitely, uh, from a physical point of view, it, it starts to break you down. And I think... The days where you had politicians who were members of parliament for 30, 40 years, um, I think they're gone now. I, I don't think we'll ever see them anymore um, because we're much more in touch with our communities. And I rather suspect that the more in touch some people are with their communities, the less their communities like them. And that's why they get turfed out at the election. But um, I just don't think you could do this job for, for 30, 40 years anymore. I, I don't think it's possible given the, the demands of it. Yeah, one of the things that struck me when I've been working. Uh, for my MP cat is is this thing of of you just having to have a view on everything we get hundreds of emails a day that range pretty much every topic imaginable you know there's been a campaign Beth and I were talking about last week um have you, I'm sure you've seen these emails David a campaign about cat smuggling and you'll have you have to write an email about cat smuggling one minute and then the yeah. next about refugees from Ukraine and just needing to be across everything and have a view on everything and and you mentioned the three parts of the job. I wonder, David, if you think that's a good way of doing politics, if you think that way where one person has to have views on everything and has to appear to be an expert on cats and the Ukraine and, and do all of that in one go, is that a, a great way of doing politics? I mean, the way that politics is, is meant to work is that it's meant to be a represented democracy. Um, so 
I think probably politicians, um, and, and there's definitely a faith aspect to this, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to. But um, you know, I, I you know I'm somebody who believes that you know Jesus Christ was was born, walked this earth, went to the cross, and, and died for my sins, and um, with that comes a hell of a lot of humility. Um, and so I, I don't have any problems with with saying to my constituents, particularly those who stop me in the street and ask me what my views are on cat smuggling or what foie or something like that. But if I don't know the answer to it, I'll be quite honest with them. Um, I think the, the, the problem that, that some politicians make is that they want to try and appear um, almost kind of infallible and that they've got an answer to absolutely everything. And as is the case in life, the people that I represent don't have an answer to everything. Um, what I do have is an obligation to go away and learn about a subject. Um, and that, to, let's, let's, let's you know, be, be really honest here, that, Ryan and Beth, is, is the job that you guys do. I mean, you, you go away and you, you, you kind of do a bit of research and find out what is the, the kind of position of the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, respectively, on cat smuggling. Um, I would imagine that we'd probably be all in favour of not smuggling cats, by the way, uh, just as a, a separate aside. But... Um, and I think sometimes that the the staff who work for MPs are probably a bit overlooked. You know, it's, it's our face that's on the leaflets, it's our names, it's on the ballot papers. Um, but I, I never kind of shy away from from saying that I'm supported by a team because I just cannot be over all of that detail. I, I need to be supported for that. But I, I think politics um, would be respected more by the public if MPs just appeared a little bit more human and just said to them, "Look, we we don't actually like think about cat smuggling twenty four hours a day." Um, and yes, there are constituents, I mean, particularly on the issue of animal welfare, um, which is one of the biggest issues that I get lobbied on in my inbox. Um, you know, for some people, that is a hugely, hugely important issue. Um, but I, I don't think it's a bad thing that you, you're, you're kind of stretched, you're challenged, you're, you're asked to go and look at different things. But I think that it come, comes with a, a, a real kind of obligation to show humility and and make sure that you're, you're honest with folk that you can't be across all of the detail um, because if, if it, a representative democracy works the representative has got to be just like the people that they he or she represents mm. and the vast majority of my constituents don't talk about cat smuggling by the way it is so true that the, the research and the work that goes on behind the scenes it's just massive because you know, I write there's so many issues just running concurrently and to I guess support those people who reach out to MPs and and ask questions or um, ask for action you know and I, I often think that um you know, the promise that MPs are going to get back to people so quickly because there is that um, expectation isn't it that if you reach out to an MP that you'll hear back within a couple of weeks ideally but that is just I think in the digital age with emails and phone calls that just volume is unbelievable and I think a lot of our listeners might not quite realise how how hard that is to keep up and not let things um, slide because you want to give people good answers and not just like pop them off. Yeah, so, so I get a thing that I do that probably frustrates some of my clients if I'm being truly honest, um, but I, I reply to absolutely everything I left up. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, firstly, um, so that you know it doesn't end up in some sort of spam folder, um, but also so they've got something tangible that they can hold and actually read. Um, and there's also, thirdly, probably an element of it is that I want people to actually read something, reflect on it, and then, you know, if they want to come back to me, that's fine. But I think part of the problem with mass and instant communication is that 
people are far too quick to just shoot from the hip. And, and that is the same with politicians. I mean, think of the number of politicians, myself included, many years ago, who've got into trouble for just um, tweeting whatever thought comes into their mind at that very moment. Um, and, and and we live, and in particular, I mean, the, the three of us are, you know, I was going to say all under 30, but, you know, I'm actually 31 now. Um, but we're all under 32. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. we're, we're so used to this, this, this culture of instantaneous response, things happen instantaneously. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember that when you wanted something, you had to go to the shop and buy it. And sometimes you'd have to wait to the weekend for that. Now, if I want something, I go on my phone, pull up the Amazon app, and sometimes it's delivered before 10 o'clock that night. And I think the same is true of our politics as well. Um, I, I've been really fortunate, as I say, to have, have worked in, in, in some form of politics in another since 2008. And, and to be honest, in 2008, people weren't direct messaging their MPs on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook Messenger. They were largely sending them emails. And the problem is, is that the, there are just so many, and it's, it's not so much a problem, but the issue is that there are so many mediums through which people can contact the parliamentarians that you would, you know, we do become quite kind of bogged down um, dealing with stuff. And some of that, frankly, I've got to be honest here, is somebody just tagging you into a tweet thinking, right, let's find out what you randomly thinks about this. I don't imagine 20, 30 years ago they would have sat down at their kind of IBM processor and typed out a letter to ask you what you think about, you know, Harry Styles or, or whatever. <laughs> These are the things I've got to have, a, have a, an opinion on. But yeah, What yeah. is the SNP position on Harry Styles? I think that's... <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the SNP position in Harry Styles is that Scotland is a nation and nations are best served when they govern themselves. Um, and I'm sure Harry Styles will be a huge supporter of Scottish independence. That's the line anyway. Uh, well, we, you touched there gently on on um, nationalism and uh, on or being the Scottish Nationalist Party, rather. And that's really the crux of my question. One thing I did want to ask you about is you are a, an SNP MP and obviously... Scottish National Party has the word national in it. And sometimes that brand, that word, will have connotations that, that we might want to distance ourselves from. Certainly nationalist or nationalism, um, we, might, we might associate with um, violence or intolerance or whatever. And so that does, it does lead me to ask the question, what is it to have a responsible national identity uh, uh, uh what is it to have um to be a national party that is also inclusive and progressive and 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 yeah how do you approach those labels of, around nationalism and yeah uh, excellent question Ryan. i mean i think I, i'm quite upfront with the fact that i'm a nationalist um but i like think maybe small end nationalist um and, and there's a real difference here between what form of nationalism my party represents. I would say that we very much represent a form of civic nationalism, certainly rather than the ultra-nationalism that you see that, that is engulfing certain parts of Europe at the moment, um, and indeed worldwide. So what I think um, probably is, is slightly distinctive about my party's politics is we are an internationalist party. You know, we, we were, for example, opposed to um, leaving the European Union because we thought that... The, the way that the European Union is structured, um, particularly that, you know, you've got the likes of Malta and Germany, um, vastly different in size, 
um, but having the same voting we uh, on the the council, um, I, I think that that that's where that there would be a slight difference between, for example, the SNP's view towards Westminster, which is not an anti-English thing. I mean, you, you know fine well that I am not anti-English, given that your boss is an English MP and happens to be my partner as well. Um, so for me. You know, Scottish nationalism represents things like you know more a, a more compassionate view um, of of certain aspects. So, like, let's take for example international development. Um, we have continued to oppose the UK government's, in my view, shameful cut to international development spending. Um, I, I think that we should look after the poorest people in the world. Spending 0.7 percent of GNI on international development um, was something I think we should all, regardless of our constitutional politics, be incredibly proud of. The same is true of immigration as well. Um, to be absolutely frank about, about it, um, Scotland's problem has never been immigration, it's been immigration. Um, and without you know, net inward migration, we would have a falling population. A falling population is not good for the economy, it means that you've got a declining uh, tax base, it means you can't fund pensions and stuff. Um, so so I, I would like to think that as a result of being a Scottish nationalist, and in particular in favour of Scottish independence, it's in a, a much broader view of the world. It's about being open, inclusive, welcoming. Um, I think, you know, at the time of recording this podcast, the, the UK government is still wrangling over the number of refugees, for example, we'll take from Ukraine. Um, we've been in a ridiculous situation in the last week where a UK government minister has said, oh, yes, they can come here under our seasonal agriculture uh, worker scheme. Um, these are people who are literally fleeing war, tyranny, fascism, um, and the, the UK government's wrangling over, over migration figures. Um, so, so, so my view of, of Scotland is one that is inclusive, it's welcoming, does its bit to play its part in the world stage. Um, and that's where I think at the moment, sadly, there is a, a, a pretty large divergence between Scotland and, and, and other parts of the UK. Um, and I don't just restrict that principally to England. I mean, Wales, for example, voted for Brexit. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are some of the, the issues uh, that I would say my nationalist politics is slightly more warm and cuddly than perhaps you were portraying. <laughs> what, what does it mean then um, to, we were joking about this a bit earlier, Beth and I, but to love your neighbour, um, what is it? How do you have a, a, a good relationship as Scotland, as the SNP, with with England and with English MPs? And you and you say you're not anti-English. What? How do you foster that? Well, I mean, look, we've got a, a good relationship with the Republic of Ireland. We, we don't have to govern them um, to have a good relationship with them. Um, I, I would argue that actually a good relationship is a relationship that's based on quality. Um, you know, in, in my case. You know, I, I represent a, a part of the uh, the UK that hasn't voted for a majority Conservative government since the 1950s. Um, so I would argue that there's a huge democratic deficit that exists at the moment. And the reality is that Scotland has 59 seats at Westminster and um, all 59 seats could vote Labour and we still wouldn't get a Labour government. Um, so there, there's an issue of electoral equality that exists. Um, I, I think that the UK in its current form um, is, is hugely undemocratic. That's without even getting into issues like the House of Lords, um, which I think is an absolute affront to democracy. Um, so I, I think that, you know, 
a good relationship, loving your neighbour, is, is being on equal terms. And I would say, you know, the Republic of Ireland is a good example of that. You know, we, we have a, a good relationship with the Republic of Ireland, but we, we don't need to decide what the law is for the people in Donegal uh, or Cork are. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, David. It's it's just really good to hear from a perspective, and I'm sure not something that we've heard on this podcast before, certainly not while Ryan and I have been hosting it, and to hear your perspective, yeah. That's really great. Thank you. Um, and just, and we've only got a few more minutes of your time. Um, so just want to come back to something that you mentioned before. Um, just be interesting to hear from you. Um, just a bit more about your faith and what does it mean to be a Christian and to, I guess, represent people to be an MP and maybe something if you'd share a little bit about how your faith interacts with your work and I guess your decision making or how um, you try and do your job to the best of your ability as an MP? Well look, there's a huge tension in that for a start. I mean I, I broadly approach things from the, the point of view of separating faith and the state. Um, I mean there's a huge theological discussion we could have probably not at this time on a Thursday morning but um, you know, I, I am aware that I have been elected as an MP, but I think it's really important to be honest that I wasn't elected principally as a Christian MP. Um, the vast majority of my constituents, I would like to hope that I've got a good witness. It's not something that's perfect all the time. Um, but the vast majority of my constituents um, didn't vote for me based on the fact that I was a practicing Christian. They, they, let's be blunt, I mean, they voted for me because I'm an SNP candidate. Um, my Christian faith definitely influences my politics um so i i believe very much in in supporting the most vulnerable in society and you know if you want to kind of cross-reference that with the bible you'll look, look at things like the good samaritan um so i would tend to take the view um very much opposite that of a conservative that, that, that the state can be a, a good force in people's lives I understand that conservatives would say that you know a, a small state is better and you don't want too much state control or reaching people's lives um but, I mean, let, let's take social security, which is the, the issue that I kind of speak most principally on in, in Westminster. Um, the, the fact is we, we live in a country where, you know, two and a half, two point six million people last year were fed by a food bank. And many of those food banks, by the way, are, are connected to churches. Um, and and there's, there's some really sound biblical principles behind, you know, feeding the poor. Jesus is feeding the five thousand is a good example of that. Um, but if, if we're in a situation in this country where... Um, 2.6 million people are required to be fed because social security support, because state support is not enough, um, then then I would argue that that's where my Christian politics influences, or that's where my Christian faith influences my politics. Um, so so that's a really good example of it. I, I get uncomfortable um, when, when people um, start to conflate issues of faith and politics too much. Um, and a conversation that I've had with a number of people, particularly in the church, as it were, is that to many of my to many of my colleagues who are not from a faith background, they feel like they only hear the church speaking on issues of, for example, sexual behaviour. You know, they, they hear the people they hear people in the church talking a lot about homosexuality, and they hear people in the church talking about abortion. Um, actually, I, I would. I would kind of argue that if, if you read the New Testament, Jesus doesn't actually talk about these issues anywhere near as much as he talks about social justice and or as much as he talks about, you know, you know clothing the, the poor and feeding them. Um, 
so so that that that's a tension, um, and that's why I always get a bit worried um, when people uh, start to, to bring faith and the state too closely together. Um, as I say, it's a, it's a much wider conversation. Um, but one of the the, the messages that I, I would really want anybody listening to this podcast to think about is, you know, chances are if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a Christian, and and, and that's great. Um, but if you're interacting with politicians, remember that a lot of politicians are not Christians. Um, and I'll tell you an anecdote that I worked for a, a politician in the Scottish Parliament back in the kind of uh, early kind of 2010s. And this was at the time when the Scottish Parliament was considered whether or not to legislate for equal marriage, um, which I think was, was an excellent policy. But I remember the office received this letter from a, a member of the clergy and it was, you know, typewritten, and the, the biggest words in the letter were sodomy. And I just remember thinking, right, okay, you know, in this office, you know, I, I worked for Christian politicians, so we can understand why this person might be a bit upset about it. Um, but I remember thinking, my goodness, imagine if you were a, a parliamentarian who was not from a faith background, and that was that was the witness that you received. That that was that was the representation of of what people who purported to follow Jesus were behaving. Um, so. Uh, there, there's there's lots that you can say about how to lobby well as a Christian in politics, um, but we must always remember that in, in politics are witness, um, particularly to, to politicians who are not from a faith background, um, is is the the impression that people get of Jesus Christ, uh, and far too often I just feel that the church, and I mean that like you know almost kind of UK wide, the church just seems really interested in a lot of issues that I'm not necessarily convinced is representative of, of that of society. Mm. I appreciate you can get into a huge theological dispute about that. Um, but I want to hear the church talking more about poverty. I want to hear the church talking more about the immorality of nuclear weapons. Um, I don't see that at the moment. I think that's a, a big challenge for mm. us all to, to think about. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, David. Um, that's a, a wonderful place to kind of come into land. Um, yeah, and a good challenge and a good thing to think about. So, yeah, thank you so much for chatting to us today. We've really enjoyed it. It's been it's been a lot of fun and very thought provoking. More power to Harry Styles as well. Um, so we'll we'll end it there, I think. Thank you. Awesome. Well, that was a lot of fun. So good to chat with David just now. Um, just then, it was in the past. Um, <laughs> so what what from what David said, Beth, stood out to you, what what have you been thinking about and reflecting on from that conversation? Yeah, it was so good. And I've actually, that was my first time of meeting David. And I think what one of the things that stuck out to me was how the topic of humility as an MP seemed to come up a number of times. Mm. And he seems to take really seriously the call to be part of his community but not be some kind of superhuman saviour who goes to Westminster and solves all their problems and knows everything about every topic, yeah. but someone who is part of the community and does that role of advocating for them, supporting them through casework and, I guess, being a normal person. Yeah. I think he does that really well, almost without feeling like he has to be self-deprecating and put himself down more just through being honest and yeah. I really like that I think that if he was my MP I would probably 
find them very approachable and and trust him to do a good job or to try and do a good job for me which I guess is a key part of being an MP. Yeah no, I, I have the privilege of, of knowing David relatively well um, and, and I've worked in offices with him and stuff and he you know just to gush about him briefly he really is just a really great fun guy um, but also simultaneously somebody who takes his work extremely seriously and I you know I've seen him flip from just having a laugh and then suddenly having you know a really important conversation about like pensions or whatever um and i think sometimes we do forget or can forget that these are they are just human beings these mps and you know i wonder to a degree you think about the think about the press conferences that used to happen during the like covid lockdown days and they would wheel out these um, politicians and they would like say very stern serious things and I wonder if that's done damage to our ability to think of them as human beings and partly you know I'm I'm not necessarily a big fan of a lot of those particular MPs on a on a political level so maybe I already don't think of them as human beings but um that's on me uh, and I, but I wonder if Covid has done damage because it because it is massively formalized I think the way that we see and interact with politicians I don't know I guess though that that dynamic of MPs and politicians being the ones who have the solutions and can solve the problems and be the change that isn't a Covid thing and I know that's what you're saying but the idea that they're presenting the truth and laying down the law I guess um I suppose just in COVID that's been less challenged perhaps because it has been a health crisis and there's been less room for the opposition to challenge um, that formality of, I guess, laying down the COVID law and what we all need to be doing in terms of restrictions. But now they're lifting, I guess, that room for debate and challenges opening up again, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I, um, I don't know if you listen to... Um another podcast other podcasts are available um by oh what's his name um he's recently gone on dragon's den it's called the podcast is um called diary of a ceo anyway i can't remember his name it's steven someone steven someone spoke to matt hancock recently um in this podcast it was went kind of viral it was kind of famous and um in this podcast he says to matt hancock um i thought you were just an emotionless robot um and which you know poor old matt um but um yeah i thought it was interesting that um i don't know if you, it's a we know on a human level that nobody's an emotionless robot that matt as we found out had all sorts of things going on and and he's he's not an emotionless robot but i, I wonder why that instinct is there to sometimes paint people as emotionless robots it should be it was worth saying i think Stephen, um i don't know his surname rode back on that and said but now i've spoken to you i think you're a great guy um but yeah but why is it that we have that instinct to paint people as emotionless robots and i wonder if that is something you know um david spoke a lot about witness and christian witness i wonder if that is something that we can seek to do as a distinctly christian witness to to fight that urge to paint people as emotionless robots and and to instead go with 
the the truth as naff as it might sound that these people are actually all fearfully and wonderfully made and and infinitely and uniquely loved um i recognize that that's potentially a very easy thing to say and a, a little bit trite but yeah that maybe that that to me could be the start of what it means to have christian witness in in, in politics i guess that links in as well to david because he is an opposition politician you know he's uh, from scotland and fighting for the cause of independence so that one of the challenges for him i guess is how do you challenge people's ideas without vilifying them or painting them as these nasty evil and um, power wielding politicians and rather treating them with respect which I, i'm not saying which i think he does but i can see that it must be a real challenge and mm. it's a challenge to us of how do we i guess as JPIT as well a lot of what we do here at JPIT is running campaigns and challenging the status quo and challenging policy and saying we actually don't think this is good enough for all these reasons mm. how do we do that and stand up for what we believe is just and right and true and compassionate whilst whilst stopping ourselves from falling into the trap of painting people as inherently wrong or mm. the enemy to be fought yeah when we know that our fight isn't actually with each other but basically the way that humans are wired is that we are really good at, at dealing with things in binaries and that it's actually much easier to get results and to get people to support your cause and to you know, look at the success of of um political campaigns in this country over the last few years like part of what was so successful about the 2019 conservative campaign was this thing of get brexit done like we're really good at latching on to just simple messages that set up a binary of brexit no brexit or, or whatever it is um i wonder if and and there's there's a risk in this because because in 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 saying oh we're going to try and seek a more nuanced approach we're going to try and draw everybody together and see where everyone's coming from which i think is absolutely the right ambition there's a risk that you're setting yourself up to lose because we know that so often what people resonate with is the binaries and is the a versus b and so to to say no we're we're actively going to seek the more nuanced the more thoughtful but the less easy to latch onto way of talking about politics and discussing with people um there's a chance that you're you're setting yourself up to to make your life very difficult in terms of getting the results you want to see and i don't necessarily think that it's wrong to simplify causes into easy to latch onto ideas because mm. that is how we work as human beings but I do see what you mean about choosing to not let things get so black and white. The line would be if it's painting the other side as evil or as all these people who, everyone who possibly could believe this thing is actually evil. Like there's, okay, maybe there are a few instances where, you know, whatever. <laughs> no. Um, I think on most, that's not actually proportionate and not helpful 
if we're going to treat these people with respect and yet massively disagree <laughs> there's got to be a way of doing that and maybe an example and we've not done this at jfit not at all but i have seen protests on parliament square outside parliament so when i go for my lunchtime walk there's always protests and i quite enjoy that buzz of people standing up for things they believe in but especially around more controversial figures for example pretty patel around the nationality and borders bill you know lots of people are very passionate and think that's horrendous and and we at jpit have been standing up against that bill but i have seen protests and and placards and chants actually attack her personally mm. and uh, very like quite aggressive angry language and i find that i find that very uncomfortable because how, how i don't think that's effective at all for one yeah. but also um how is she ever expected to change her mind if the option is to change your mind to partner with people who are basically calling you horrendous things yeah. i just don't think that's helpful for political discourse and i'm really glad i'm really proud that here at jp we don't do that we would target the issue and not the person yeah and that whole discourse as you say like just causes people to to double down and it makes it it makes it very very difficult for people to to uh, erode their position or to row back on their position because then they're having to acquiesce to the people who are being horrible about them um and so therefore the the, the two sides inevitably um get further and further apart i suppose you you know the the reality is as well that on either side of a debate as as um fraught as the as um the debate around nationality and borders bill is there will be people on both sides saying unsavory things and the ambition and it's one of our six hopes is is to create a, a politics and a discourse on both sides that is is um is kinder and gentler um and more loving um it strikes me that there's a really there's a difficult thing there of and i believe we're called to do this but that it's difficult to be the first one to be to be gentle and to uh and to be kind um it's sometimes difficult to be that because you've if you're just if you're just resolved to just talk about the issue and um try and uh bring people together and try and be gentle then that means you're going to have to take uh, sometimes a bunch of flack or abuse potentially that you're not going to respond to. And that's difficult. That's a challenge. Um, and it's not, it's not pleasant, but I do think it is what we are called to do as Christians. And ultimately, mm. if you allow me to be a bit grandiose, what Jesus did on the cross. Well, well, lots of, food for thought there um once again we were super super grateful to chat to david today uh and as Beth said at the beginning do get your tickets for the from the ground up conference we're really looking forward to it june the 11th um until next month see you soon bye, bye. Super duper. That'll do.